0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to get things started today, I want to be sure first to uh, thank the three fellow saloners who made donations to the salon during the past week or so. Hopefully you have uh, all received a personal thank you email from me by now. And uh, also a big thank you goes out to the kind souls who have written a review of one of my books on Amazon. And you should know that your encouragement is, uh, well, it's pushing me onward with uh, work on my new novel. And uh, one last group of uh, wonderful fellow Saloners uh, I'd like to thank are those who have taken the time to write a few kind words about the Salon on iTunes. And uh, all of this is a big help in keeping the Salon alive, and I deeply appreciate your support. And speaking of support, uh, well, last week I played a tribute to Myron Stolaroff, who, uh, once he had experienced LSD for the first time... Well, uh, he essentially devoted the rest of his life to promoting the investigation and use of psychedelic medicines. Now, most of us are never going to be in a position to do something so drastic, but there now is a way for you to participate in the important work of psychedelic research, and uh, yet you only have to invest about, uh, well, about 45 minutes of your time to do so. You probably already know uh, what I'm talking about, and that is the ongoing research that Dr. Roland Griffiths and his colleagues are conducting at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. As you know, uh, there have been several important studies conducted at Johns Hopkins in the uh, past few years, and uh, now Dr. Griffiths has asked me to uh, directly contact you and our other fellow salons to see if you would be willing to take part in a new online study that they're conducting. Uh, Here's what he said in his email. Dear Lorenzo, although we have not met, I feel I know you through your interesting podcast. I'm writing to ask for your assistance. My Hopkins colleagues and I are conducting an anonymous, web-based study to characterize the difficult or challenging experiences that people sometimes have on psilocybin mushrooms. That is, bad trips, whether the person later regards them negatively or positively. I'm writing to ask if you would link to the survey on your website and or mention the survey on your podcast. We got a terrific response to our first online web survey on mystical experiences occasioned by psilocybin. We are expecting that people may be less enthusiastic about a survey of difficult experiences, which may not be as uplifting to think about. But I'm sure you would agree that the topic is an important one. We'll be probing set and setting, personality, dose, and various other factors that may contribute to difficult experiences. We will also be able to characterize the nature of these challenging experiences. Anything you can do to help spread the word will be appreciated. It would make a significant contribution to our scientific study of this fascinating substance. Keep up the good and interesting work on the podcast. Sincerely, Roland. Now, uh, if you're like me, uh, well, you may say that you've never had a bad trip. In fact, that's what I said to a friend of mine when I was telling her about this survey. And uh, then she reminded me of a trip of mine that, uh, well, it was in fact quite difficult, but I'd, uh, <laughs> I'd very conveniently forgotten all about it. So uh, now I've taken the survey myself, and I'm, well, I'm really glad that I did because it helped me to go through that experience once again and uh, actually learn a lot about what took place. Uh, to me, it was uh, really interesting, in fact, uh, to consider some of the aspects of that experience that I hadn't thought about before. Maybe... Uh, Instead of trying to think of terms of a bad trip, you might want to recall some really difficult trip that, uh, well, maybe you still haven't quite figured out yet. And uh, maybe taking this survey can uh, help you sort it all out. In any event, uh, I think that it'd be really cool of you to uh, devote part of your life to psychedelic research, even if it's only 45 minutes. It's uh, kind of our way of giving a little something back to a community of researchers who are working against great odds to push scientific inquiry of our sacred medicines, uh, well, a little further along the road to enlightenment, I guess. So I'll put a link to that uh, request for research in the program notes for this podcast, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. But uh, the URL directly to the research is quite easy to remember. It's uh, www.shroomsurvey. That's all one word. S H R O O M S U R V E Y. (laughs) Shroomsurvey.com. Quite a nice URL, don't you think? So uh, now for today's program. And uh, yes, it's uh, more from my favorite speaker here in the salon, Terrence McKenna. But uh, I've decided to change my mind a little about podcasting new Terrence McKenna talks here, and uh, here's why. Uh, On my seven-day train ride across the country and back a few weeks ago, I spent a lot of time going through a whole bunch of McKenna talks that uh, I either hadn't heard before or hadn't heard for a long time. And as I listened, I found myself kind of fast-forwarding every time he began to talk about his time-wave hypothesis or his story about how the apes became self-aware through eating mushrooms and uh, things like that. You've heard the stories yourself many times. And to tell the truth, uh, well, I think that I've played those stories over enough times already here in the Salon. So uh, I'm going off on a little new tack. What I've decided to do is, uh, well, from time to time, I'm going to put together a little audio collage of Terrence's talks by cutting out those stories that we've heard over and over. And uh, if that means that a talk is too short, I'll uh, splice in another short piece. Uh, But without having to get through some thoughts that we've, uh, well, I think we've heard enough by now, I think you're going to find uh, some fresh new ideas springing into your mind uh, in a few new looks at the mind of McKenna. So today I'm going to play an edited version of one of the interviews that Terrence gave to New Dimensions Radio, uh, this one on June 10th, 1983. And you can also find uh, other of these New Dimension Radio interviews on YouTube. Uh, And I should say, along with almost every other utterance uh, Terrence ever made. Uh, In case you've never searched YouTube for uh, Terrence McKenna Talks, you're in for a really big surprise, I think. Because, uh, well, there's more Terrence out there than probably most of us will ever have time to listen to. Uh, Even though it sure would be fun to try. So to save you a little time and to save me from listening to yet another uh, one more time of Terrence's raps about apes and mushrooms or the time wave or some of his other frequently repeated stories, I'm uh, going to play just the parts of this interview that I found most interesting. And uh, then I'm going to follow that with a, another short wrap of Terence's that I found. And uh, I do realize that if you're a historian, uh, well, you're going to find my cutting up these bits and pieces of Terence's talks, uh, well, uh, I don't know, I guess you'll probably find them to be a desecration of some kind. But the simple fact of the matter is that uh, this podcast was never meant to be any kind of a historical record as such. As I've said many times, uh, well, I only see myself as a carnival barker, and uh, all of the action is in the tent. So my role is to uh, get people interested in Terrence and uh, the other speakers here in the salon. But the action is all in the big tent, and the uh, speakers here in the salon are in the center ring. Uh, I'm just here to enjoy myself, and uh, I hope that you get as much enjoyment out of listening to these cut-up talks as I do. Now one more thing, and uh, that is to let me get my personal biases out of the way. Uh, Unless and until some new laws of physics are discovered, well, in my opinion, we humans in our earthly bodies are not going to be leaving this planet in any large numbers or for prolonged explorations of distant planets. Unless, of course, uh, it's done as uh, we're already doing on Mars, uh, you know, exploring remotely by using robots. But uh, I just can't buy into this science fiction world of uh, interstellar space travel in human bodies. Uh, Sorry about that, Trekkies. So, you ask, uh, why include uh, in the beginning of this Terence's talk of such things, then? Well, even though I can't buy into Terence's vision of humanity leaving the planet as a purely physical concept, what I can imagine is uh, one day our species uh, collectively lifting its consciousness to a higher plane, uh, maybe a place where war and ignorance and poverty no longer exist. And uh, should that ever happen, then I guess you could say that uh, humanity itself has left this world, and uh, so the poetry of Terence McKenna's vision of that departure into higher realms, uh, well, holds at least for me a great deal of charm.
1: The human imagination in conjunction with technology has become a force so potent that it really can no longer be unleashed on the surface of the planet uh, with uh, safety. The human imagination has gained such an immense power that the only environment that is friendly to it is actually the vacuum of deep space. It is there that we can erect The architectonic dreams that drive us to produce a Los Angeles or a Tokyo and do it on a scale and in such a way that it will be fulfilling rather than degrading. So yes, I think uh, we cannot uh, move forward in understanding without accepting as a consequence of that that we have to leave the planet, that we are no longer the bipedal monkeys we once were, we have become almost a new force in nature, a thing of language and cybernetics and uh, an amalgam of computers and uh, b- human brains and societal structures that uh, has such an enormous forward momentum that the only place where it can express itself without destroying itself is as James Joyce says, up in the end. So long, long
2: ago in the faraway galaxy, uh, Star Wars style may be in our future? Well...
1: As opposed to our past? It's in our present, I think. Our future is probably almost unimaginable because I think the transformation that leaving the planet will bring will uh, also involve a transformation of our consciousness. We are not going as uh, 1950 style human beings. We are going to have to transform our minds before we are going to be able to uh, leave the planet with any amount of grace. This is where I think the psychedelics come in, because they are anticipations of the future. They seem to channel information that is not uh, strictly governed by the laws of normal causality, so that there really is a prophetic dimension, a glimpse of the potential of the far centuries of the future through these compounds, and... uh, No cultural shift of this magnitude can be unambiguous. I mean, the very idea that as a species we would leave the earth behind us must be as rending an idea as that a child would leave its childhood home. Obviously, it's a turning away from something that once left behind can never be recaptured. However, this is uh, the nature of going forward into being a series of self-transforming, a sense of level, and we now simply happen to be at that moment of ascent to a new level that is linked to leaving the planetary surface physically and to reconnecting with the contents of the unconscious collectivity of our minds These two things will be done simultaneously. This is what the last half of the 20th century, it seems to me, is all about. Well,
2: by and large, uh, psychedelics have uh, really not been accepted into the mainstream. Do you see a change in that?
1: Well, not particularly. Uh, They uh, hold a certain fascination for a persistent majority, and in that way they do their catalytic work upon society, which is to introduce new ideas and to uh, uh, release a certain kind of creative energy into society. I certainly would not like to see a return to the the psychedelic hysterias of the 1960s. I think it's fine that these things are now the subject of interest of a much smaller group of people, but perhaps a group of people with a uh, greater commitment and a uh, better idea Of exactly what these things are. And it's really uh, the same people, it's just a smaller group of them, and they have accumulated experience over the past 20 years. Uh, However, I certainly don't think all psychedelic frontiers are conquered. One of the things that I write about and speak about are the phenomena that uh, many people confirm with the uh, psilocybin family of hallucinogens that no one has uh, included in the standard model of psychedelic drugs, and by that I refer to the logos-like phenomenon of an interiorized voice that seems to be uh, almost a superhuman agency, a kind of genus loci, And I've been writing recently about alien intelligence, which is what I call this, where uh, you have contact with an entity so beyond the normal structure of the ego that if it is not an extraterrestrial, it might as well be, because uh, its bizarreness and its... uh, Uh, distance from ordinary expectations about what can go on is so great that if flying saucers arrived here tomorrow from the Pleiades, it would make this mystery no less compelling, because I believe that uh, the place to search for extraterrestrials is in the psychic dimension, and there the problem is not the absence of contact, but the Uh, volume of contact that must be sifted through because the fact of the matter is shaman and mystics and seers have been hearing voices and uh, talking to gods and demons uh, since the Paleolithic and probably before. That doesn't mean that uh, we can rule out this approach to communication, uh, it seems to me far more likely that an advanced civilization would communicate interdimensionally and telepathically. Uh, the amounts of time available for an intelligent species to evolve these kinds of communication are vast. So I think uh, that it's very interesting then that the tryptamines, psilocybin and DMT, at uh, the 15 milligram level very reliably trigger uh, what could only be described as contact-like phenomena, not only the interiorized voice in the head, but also the classical flying saucer motifs of uh, the whirling disc, the lens-shaped object, the alien approach. Uh, This seems to be something hardwired into the human psyche, And uh, I would like to find out why. I think it's a very odd uh, uh, fact of human psychology, and I don't buy any of the current theories ranging from that nothing at all is happening to that this is in fact another species with a world around another star that is getting in touch with us. I think it's something so bizarre that it actually masquerades as an extraterrestrial so as not to alarm us by the true implications of what it is. But I suspect it is something like... Uh an overmind of the species uh, that actually the highest form of human organization is not realized in the democratic individual. It is realized in a dimension none of us have ever penetrated, which is the mind of the species, which is actually the hand at the tiller of history. It is no government, no religious group, but actually what we call the human unconscious, But it is not uh, unconscious, and it is not simply a cybernetic repository of myth and memory. It is an organized intellect of some sort, and human history is its signature uh, on the primate. And it is so different from the primates. It is like a creature of pure information. It is made of language. It releases ideas into the flowing stream of history to boost the primates toward higher and higher levels of self-reflection of it. And we have now reached the point where uh, the masks are beginning to fall away, and we are discovering that, uh, You know, there is an angel within the monkey struggling to get free and this is what the historical crisis is all about and I'm, for no reasons in particular, very optimistic. I mean, uh, I see it as uh, a necessary chaos that will lead to a new uh, and uh, uh, more attractive order. Terence, you were talking about
2: uh extraordinary realities and it occurs to me that there's an enormous amount of prejudice against um, the psychedelics and the uh, use of hallucinogenic uh, substances and um, it's almost as if there's an inordinate fear to open up the um, door to the closet that these substances uh, reveal um, what about that prejudice? What do you think is how is that going to be resolved? What is the resolution of that
1: well I think it's uh, it 's more complicated than a prejudice it 's uh, a prejudice born of respect because uh, most people sense that these uh, compounds probably actually do what their adherents claim they do. It's possible to see the whole human growth uh, movement of the 1970s as a wish to continue the inward quest without having to put yourself on the line the way you had to when you took 250 gamma of LSD. And I think all these other methods are efficacious, but I think it's the sheer uh, power... Of the hallucinogens that puts people off. Uh, You either love them or you hate them, and that's because they dissolve worldviews. And if you like the experience of having your entire ontological structure uh, disappear out from under you, if you think that's a thrill, Uh, you'll probably love psychedelics on the other hand for some people that's the most horrible thing they can possibly imagine they navigate reality through various forms of faith and I think uh, that the psychedelics uh, the doors of perception are cleansed and you see very very deeply Uh, I spent time in India, and I would always go to the local sadhus of great reputation, and I met many people who possessed uh, what I call wise old man wisdom. But wise old man wisdom is a kind of Tao of how to live. It has nothing to say about these dimensions that the psychedelics reveal, and uh, for that you have to go to places where hallucinogenic shamanism is practiced, specifically uh, the Amazon basin. And there you discover that beyond simply the wisdom of how to live in ordinary reality, there is a gnosis of how to navigate in extraordinary reality. And this reality is so extraordinary that we cannot approach what these people are doing with any degree of smugness. Because the frank fact of the matter is we have no viable theory of what mind is either. The beliefs of a Witoto shaman and the beliefs of a uh, Princeton phenomenologist have an equal chance of being correct, and there are no arbiters of uh, who is right. So... uh, It's the power of these things, the fact that here is something we have not assimilated, we have been to the moon, we have charted the depths of the ocean, the heart of the atom, but we have a fear uh, of looking inward to ourselves because we sense that here is where all the contradictions flow together. And uh, the same prejudice against psychoanalysis that characterized the 20s and 30s when it was thought to be uh, uh, superfluous or uh, some kind of fad uh, attends the psychedelics now. It's because it touches a very sensitive nerve. It touches uh, the issue of the nature of man and uh, People are uncomfortable with this or some people are uncomfortable with this. What is the value of exploring the uh, extraordinary realities? Well I guess it's the same value that attends the exploration of ordinary realities. There's uh, an alchemical saying that uh, one should read the oldest books, climb the highest mountains, and visit the broadest deserts. Uh, I think that uh, being imposes some kind of obligation to find out what's going on and uh, since all primary information about what is going on comes through the senses, any drug or any compound which alters that sensory input has to be looked at very carefully. I've often made the point that uh, Uh, chemically speaking, you can have a molecule which is completely inactive as a psychedelic, and you move a single atom on one of its rings, and suddenly it's a powerful psychedelic. Well, now, it seems to me this is a perfect proof of the uh, inner penetration of matter and mind. The movement of a single atom from one known position to another known position changes an experience from nothing to overwhelming. This means that mind and matter at the quantum mechanical level are uh, all spun together. This means that In a sense, the term extraordinary reality is not correct if it implies a uh, division of category from ordinary reality. It is simply there is more and more and more of reality, and some of it is inside our heads, and some of it is deployed out through uh, three-dimensional Newtonian space.
2: Most of us, I think, just simply accept uh, the everyday reality as the only one. Uh, and and you 're talking about uh, uh, journeys into the nether regions of uh, uh, which far beyond most people 's uh, conception or even wanting to conceive of uh, such a reality uh,
1: well, I think there 's a shamanic temperament which is uh, uh, a person who craves knowledge knowledge in the Greek sense of gnosis. In other words, knowledge not of the sort where you subscribe to Scientific American and it validates what you believe, but immediately, uh, cosmologies constructed out of immediate experience that are found always to be applicable. You see, I, I don't believe that the world is made out of quarks or electromagnetic waves or stars or planets or any of these things. I believe the world is made out of language, and that this is the primary fact that has been overlooked. Uh, the construction of a flying saucer is not so much a dilemma of hardware as it is uh, a poetic challenge and uh, people find it very hard to imagine exactly what i'm talking about what i'm saying is that the leading edge of reality is mind and mind is the primary uh, substratum of being we in the west have had it the wrong way around for over a millennia but uh, once this is clearly understood uh, with what we have learned in our little excursion through three-dimensional space and matter, we will uh, create a new vision of humanity that will be a fusion of the East and the West.
2: The world being made of language, and I think of these extraordinary realities which are totally beyond any language that we (laughs) use in any ordinary sense.
1: Yes, well, they are beyond ordinary language. I always think of uh, Philo Judaeus writing on the logos. He he posed to himself the question, what would be a more perfect logos? And then he answered, saying, it would be a logos which is not heard but beheld. And he imagined a form of communication where the ears would not be the primary receptors, but the eyes would be, a language where meaning was not constructed through a dictionary of little mouth noises, but actually three-dimensional objects were generated with a kind of hyper-language so that there was perfect understanding between people. And this may sound bizarre uh, in ordinary reality, but these forms of synesthesia and uh, synesthetic glossolalia are commonplace uh, in psychedelic states.
2: Terence, could you identify Philos
1: for us and tell him tell us who he was? He was an Alexandrian Jew of the second century who uh, made it his business to travel around the Hellenic world and uh, Discussed all the major cults and uh, religious and cosmogonic theories of his day So he's a major source of Hellenistic uh, data for us. How would you relate to uh, Socrates view of the world? Well, I think uh, that uh, it's hard not to be a Platonist, but it's something perhaps we should struggle against, or at least struggle to modify. I think of myself as sort of a Whiteheadian Platonist. Certainly the uh, central Platonic idea, which is the idea of the ideas, These uh, archetypal forms which stand outside of time is one which is confirmed by the psychedelic experience. And uh, uh, Plato's formulation of time as the moving image of eternity is another one of these aphorisms that the psychedelic state confirms. And certainly Neoplatonism, uh, Plotinus and Porphyry and that school... uh, are psychedelic philosophers their idea of an ascending hierarchy of more and more rarefied states is uh, a sophisticated presentation of the shamanic cosmology which is the cosmology that one experientially discovers when they involve themselves with psychedelics
2: what I think most of us don't understand or don't don't really know is the fact that Greek culture and the Eleusinian mysteries incorporated the use of something that very akin to psychedelics. Yes. And and essentially Western civilization is based on the culture that uh, had at its core root um, an experience and a ritual that, that used they say something
1: akin to psychedelics. Yes, well, for over 2,000 years, everyone who was anyone in the ancient world made the pilgrimage to Eleusis and had this experience, which Gordon Wasson and Carl Ruck have argued very convincingly was a... uh, hallucinogenic intoxication on ergot, but of course as soon as the church solidified its power, it uh, closed these Platonic Academies and uh, moved against uh, 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 pagan, so-called pagan knowledge and heretical knowledge, and not only the Platonists, but all the Gnostic sects, uh, all of these people, all of these viewpoints were repressed. I like to think that uh, uh, the end of that repression came in a very odd way when, uh, in 1953, I guess it was, uh, Gordon Wasson and his wife Valentina in the village of Watla de Jimenez in the Sierra Mazateca of Oaxaca discovered the psilocybin mushroom cult. It was as if Eros who had been martyred in the old world, was then found sleeping in the mountains of Mexico and resurrected. And uh, the experience of the mushroom is very much the experience of a genus loci, a a god on the Grecian model, not the god who hung the stars in heaven, but a local god, a... uh, a uh, pre-christian, bacchanalian nature power that uh, is, is very alien and yet resonates with our expectations of what that experience would be like.
2: Interesting that the mushroom also is a symbol in our culture of
1: death and destruction, being the symbol of the nuclear... Explosion. Yes, well, mushroom uh, cloud. my brother has made the point asking, you know, what mushroom is it that grows at the end of history? Is it the mushroom of Fermi and Oppenheimer and Teller, or is it the mushroom of Wasson and Hoffman and Humphrey Osmond? Uh somehow i think the latter is safer <laughs> <laughs> well it may not only be safer it may open the way to escape from uh, the former it's like a pun in physics uh, that the force of liberation and the force of destruction could take the same form it's a what alchemists call a coincidencia positorum mm, it is an amazing synchronicity
2: it seems uh, that uh, Also, I was inter- interested in talking with Andy Weil some uh, time ago about the fact that there are new genus of mushrooms appearing that um, have psilocybin in them that have never been seen before, never been um, tracked before, and it's almost
1: as if they're appearing now. Well, it's amazing how many have dis- been discovered since people have bent their attention to it. There have been psilocybin mushrooms reported from England. France localities where, so far as we know, there is no cultural history of usage at all. or uh, however, it's interesting that uh, cultural usage seems to disappear very early in human history. Hallucinogens are hardly even welcome in agricultural societies. Uh, I think it was Weston Labar made the point that uh, once you learn how to grow plants, your God shifts from the ecstatic god of the hallucinogens to the corn god or the food god, and it no longer is about uh, divining uh, the hunt. And weather through the ecstatic use of hallucinogens. It's about being able to get up every morning and go to work and hoe the crop. So, uh, you mentioned earlier the prejudice against hallucinogens. I think it reaches back uh, to the beginning of agriculture. This competition among plant gods which exemplified lifestyles that must have seemed very, uh, very uh, alien to each other. Is psilocybin illegal? Oh yes, it's a schedule one drug uh, without any public debate uh, it was placed uh, on the list uh, or at the same time that LSD was, and yet the issue was always couched in terms of LSD being made illegal, but actually at that point in time, a whole bunch of things were made illegal, and there was never any uh, public debate. All psychedelics were viewed as the same drug, and LSD was used as the model, actually, uh, these drugs there's a spectrum of psychedelic effects and certain drugs trigger some of them and certain ones others but yes psilocybin is illegal are the mushrooms illegal? the mushrooms also are illegal as they contain psilocybin I recall
2: Andy Wiles saying that he walked along a downtown Seattle residential street picking up psilocybin mushrooms from the front yards of
1: oh, yes. residential
2: homes <laughs> <laughs> Well.
1: And English law took the view that uh, it was preposterous to try and outlaw a naturally occurring plant and they uh, took the position that only the chemical was illegal which I think is a very, uh, a very wise position but I noticed that Canada recently chose the American interpretation over the British one.
2: Hmm, interesting. Turns out, uh, going back to the Andy Weil story, that uh, the reason that these mushrooms were in such uh, plenitude in various locales in the Northwest was that uh, their uh, spores were contained in a, uh, a mail-order company's uh, um,
1: mushroom-growing uh, product that they sent out mail-order. Yes, well, this is an interesting uh, phenomenon. You see, the spores of the mushroom are not illegal because they do not contain psilocybin. They only contain the message in the DNA of the mushroom for the production of psilocybin, so it's a kind of bizarre catch-22. The mushroom spores can move anywhere legally, can be bought and sold, but they are the sine qua non for the production of mushrooms, of course.
2: Terence, the the kind of knowledge and kind of information you're putting forward is Is not generally available it's not the kind of information or knowledge that one would find in the typical academic anthropology uh, curriculum Um, and yet it seems to be um, a knowledge that uh, is ever expanding but somehow it's it's outside of the cultural institutional uh, entities in some way Um, number one why do you think that's the case of course there's a logical answer to that one but
1: Um, What do you see as the future of this kind of information, this kind of knowledge? Well, I think in a sense it signals the rebirth of the institution of shamanism in the context of modern society. And uh, anthropologists have always made the point about shaman that they were very important social catalysts in their group, but they were always peripheral to it, peripheral to the political power, and actually usually physically peripheral, living at some distance from the village. And uh, I think the uh, electronic shaman, the people who pursue these, the exploration of these spaces, Uh, exist to return to tell the rest of us about it, that we are now coming into a period of racial maturity as a species where we can no longer have uh, forbidden areas of the human mind or cultural uh, uh, machinery. We Have uh, taken upon ourselves the acquisition of so much power that we now must understand what we are. Uh, We cannot uh, travel much further with the the definitions of man that we inherit from the Judeo-Christian tradition. We need to truly explore the problem of consciousness because as man gains power he is becoming the defining fact on the planet in the near space area so uh, the question that looms is is man good and then if he is what is it he's good for and uh, the shaman will point the way because what they are are uh, visionaries poets cultural architects forecasters, all these roles, which we understand in more conventional terms, rolled into one and raised to the nth power. They are cultural models for the rest of us. This has always been true. The the shaman has access to a superhuman dimension and a superhuman condition and by being able to do that he affirms the trans the potential for transcendence in all people he is an exemplar if you will and I see the attention that's being given to these things signaling a sense on the part of the society that we need a return to these models. This is why, for instance, in the Star Wars phenomenon, Skywalker, Luke Skywalker, Skywalker is a direct translation of the word shaman out of the Tungusic, which is uh, where... Siberian shamanism comes from. So these heroes that are being instilled in the heart of the culture are shamanic heroes. They control a force which is uh, bigger than everybody and holds the galaxy together, and this is true as a matter of fact. And as we explore how true it is, the uh, limitations of our previous worldview will be uh, exposed for all to see. I think it was J.B.S. Haldane who said, uh, "The world may not only be stranger than we suppose; it may be stranger than we can suppose." And I think of uh, the, char-
2: the <coughs> excuse me the character Yoda uh, certainly right. is a shamanic type character. Very much so. Yeah. As we talk about shamans and shamanism, again, that brings up uh, cross-cultural currents and. Um, do you see the, sh- the shaman taking on a new, uh, certainly you don't see Indian shamans walking uh, into the metropolitan uh, areas, uh, but do you see the shaman taking on a new form?
1: Well, I, th- I believe, uh, along with Gordon Wasson and others, but in distinction to Marcella who is a major writer on shamanism, that uh, it is hallucinogenic shamanism that is primary and that where shamanic techniques are used to the exclusion of uh, hallucinogenic drug ingestion, the shamanism tends to be vitiated. It is more like uh, a ritual enactment of what real shamanism is, so that uh, uh, the shamanism that is coming to be is coming to be within people in our culture, Uh, the people who feel comfortable with uh, psychedelic drugs and who by going into those spaces and then returning with works of art or poetic accounts or scientific ideas are actually changing the face of the culture. I connect the psychedelic dimension to the dimension of inspiration and dream. I think history has always uh, progressed by the bubbling up of ideas from these nether dimensions into the minds of receptive men and women. It is simply that now, with the hallucinogens, we actually have a tool to push the button. We are no longer dependent upon uh, whatever factors it is that previously controlled the uh, ingression of novelty into human history. We have taken that function to ourselves And this will accelerate and uh, and uh, intensify the cultural crisis but I think in the end it will lead that much sooner to its resolution
2: so as we uh, continue to uh, move towards the further exploration of these spaces um, we uh, can expect that um, social change as a result personal
1: change tremendous social change I see in fact uh, What is happening is a tendency to? uh, What I call turn the body inside out We are through our media and our cybernetics. We are actually approaching the point where consciousness can be experienced uh, uh, In a state of disconnection from the body we have changed. We are no longer, as I said, bipedal monkeys. We are instead a kind of cybernetic coral reef of organic components and inorganic technological components. We have become a force which takes unorganized raw material and excretes uh, technical objects. We have transcended the normal definitions of man. We are like an enormous collective organism with our data banks and our forecasting uh, agencies and our computer networks and the many levels at which we are connected into the universe. Our self-image is changing. The monkey is uh, all but being left behind and shortly will be left behind. The flying saucer again, I take to be an image of the future state of humanity. It is a kind of millenarian transformation of man where the soul is exteriorized as the apotheosis of technology, (coughs) and it is that eschatological event which is casting enormous shadows backward through time over the historical landscape, that is the siren at the end of time calling all mankind across the last 10 millennia toward it, calling us out of the trees and into history and through this series of multi-level cultural uh, transitions to the point where the thing within the monkeys, the creature of pure language and pure imagination, whose aspirations are entirely uh, uh, titanic in terms of self-transformation, that thing is emerging, and it will emerge as man leaves the planet. And it's not something quantized and clearly defined. It is, in fact, what the next 50 or so years will be about but at the end of it, the species will be off-planet and transformed and fully wired from the depths to the heights. Are we just talking about another version of the Christian death, resurrection, ascension into heaven? Except that it is coming into history. What is happening is that uh, the, uh, the paradise promised the soul is actually going to enter into history because technological man took the apocalyptic aspirations of Christianity so seriously that we are going to make it happen. It has become the guiding image of what we want to be, and I'm reminded of the poem by Yeats, it's Sailing to Byzantium, where he speaks of how after death he would like to be an enameled golden object singing to the lords and ladies of Byzantium. And it's the image of man transformed into eternal circuitry and released into a hyperspace of information where uh, you are a thing of circuitry, but you appear to be walking along an unspoiled beach in paradise. It is that we are going to uh, find the power to realize our deepest cultural aspirations. This is why we must find out what our deepest cultural aspirations are. Again, another way of phrasing the question, is man good? What about the idea that these spaces that we've been talking about, that you've been
2: illuminating, are spaces that can be achieved without the use of psychedelics?
1: Well, again, I scoured India, and my humble personal opinion is uh, that uh, it is highly unlikely. Uh, I have always approached uh, people of spiritual accomplishment with the question, what can you show me? Because, as I said earlier, this wise old man (laughs) wisdom is one thing, but only the the hallucinogen-using shaman of the Amazon Seem to be able to go beyond that. Uh, There may be techniques for doing this, but uh, the efficacy and the dependability of the hallucinogens seems to me to make them the obvious uh, choice. It would only be a series of cultural conventions that would cause one to want to engineer around that. It is the obvious uh, path to transcendence. People must face the fact that at one level we are chemical machines that doesn't mean we are that at every level but it does mean that that is a level where we can intervene to change the pictures that are coming in and going out at higher levels
2: you're not suggesting that people
1: should do this by themselves take hallucinogens Well, I don't know about take it by themselves. Probably not, although uh, I always do, and uh, I seem to prefer it. What I am suggesting is they take it in a situation of minimum sensory input. Lying down in darkness with eyes closed cannot be surpassed. And people want music, they want to walk around in nature, they want all these things. But nature and music are beautiful in their own right. They are the adumbrations of the psychedelic experience that we deal with in ordinary reality. In confrontation with the psychedelic experience, these things are hardly more than impediments. The very interesting things are happening in the utter blackness behind your eyelids lying still in darkness. And uh, that is where the mystery uh, comes from and goes to. My question had to do with with or without a guide. Oh, I don't think people should do it without a guide unless they feel very confident from experience that they don't need a guide. I like to have these ideas get out. I think it's important that we discuss all this in a way that is only now becoming possible because of how it was in the 1960s. Now we need to shed all that and look back and look forward and try to make a mature judgment for our culture based on the facts of the matter. Well, someone asked when we first went around to try and talk about the future. I don't know if I made the point uh, strongly enough. I, I wasn't sure I felt it click. And I think it's a strong one and it's somewhat new with me. It's this idea that um, our, uh, that we represent some kind of singularity or that we announce the nearby presence of a singularity that the evolution of life and cultural form and all that is clearly funneling toward something fairly unimaginable. I mean, I really don't think we can imagine our future. Because when we try to project some little science fiction scenario of our future, we inevitably select a very small number of trends and then we propagate them forward without integrating the forward propagation of everything else that is going to be happening simultaneously. Uh, you know, there are options such as nanotechnology, the building of super tiny machines. Uh, space migration was once an option this seems to be fading it seems to have been written off the menu by the powers that be as the Soviet Union cracks to pieces the human race's ability to leave this planet becomes a memory of ancient times I mean we could not return to the moon in less than 15 years if we committed ourselves to it uh, tomorrow So the space thing seems to have been taken off the agenda. There's nanotechnology, there's virtual reality. Uh, The present solution seems to be this enforced larval neoteny on the consuming blue-collar masses in the high-tech societies and triage through epidemic disease and mismanagement uh, in the third world. Uh, I, you know, it's a huge mix, this problem of saving the world or halting the forward thrust into catastrophe. Uh, I don't, uh, people say, well, why do you worry about saving the world? You just said it's going to end in 2012. Uh, I don't. I don't see that rap as any sort of permission for political irresponsibility or a lack of attention to world problems. If it's true, great, we're golden. If it's not true, and what a long shot it is, then we should still keep our eye on the ball with all of this stuff. It is overpopulation is what's driving us crazy. All other problems... Toxic waste disposal, epidemic disease, resource extraction, degradation of the environment, collapse of the atmosphere, inability to satisfy third world aspirations. Uh, All of these problems are population problems. And uh, capitalism doesn't want to talk about it because capitalism is not a human being. Capitalism is a Moloch, a god, a a god of bloody sacrifice that sees human beings as ants. And the more ants there are, the more offerings there can be to Moloch. But this is not a good situation for us ants. And, uh, you know, capitalism is a gun pointed at the head of global civilization. If you read the theoreticians of capitalism, Adam Smith and so forth, capitalism assumes an unlimited exploitable frontier. There is no such creature. So it has turned pathological. The only frontier now left to exploit is not a frontier in space, but a frontier in time. We steal the future from our children by plunging massively deeper and deeper into debt. But this frontier, the end, is in sight. And we, when we hit that wall, uh, you know, uh, we will join uh, the Eastern Bloc in a fundamental reappraisal of our situation. Democracy, I believe in, I mean, I think democracy is the psychedelic, Form of government because I don't see it as a product of rational thought. I see it as institutionalized anarchy. It's uh, democracy is biology managed for human purposes. You know, it honors the biological unit. Uh, it takes the biological unit and gives it a vote, and that's a way for Mother Nature to then enter into human history. I mean, I'm fairly mystical about democracy, sort of like William Blake. So how are you preparing for 2012 yourself, personally? Well, by going way out on a limb, I guess. Uh, People ask me, what'll you do if nothing happens in 2012? Well, by God-sent coincidence, my 65th birthday occurs a month before the date, so then I think I'll just steal away in disgrace and find myself a girl on an island who runs fish traps and disappear forever. (laughs) As to what I do in the meantime, uh, uh, I don't. I should make it clear, you know, I don't believe this stuff. Uh, I, I I find believing in these high-flown, complicated, synthetic systems to come off sort of like pathology. Uh, so I entertain ideas. But I don't uh, give belief over. I'm very amazed by the time wave. It continuously surprises and delights me. And I don't know, very few people are obviously as into it as I am. But it's, it's proof enough as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's all I ever would have asked for. You know, it's a, it's a gem from the other. It's Aladdin's lamp. It's what I wanted and I got it. At one point in, in La Charrera, naturally this question arose in our group. Why us? You know, why us? Why are the aliens revealing the unified field theory of space and time to us and the mushroom just replied without hesitation uh, because you don't believe in anything you know you are, and that apparently is what's required do you all know that Van Morrison song about no guru, no method, no teacher just you and me and nature in the garden in the garden I think that's actually where it's at. So what I do between now and 2012 is I'm a a meme spreader, a meme replicator. And the purpose of these teaching things is to turn you into fellow replicators of the meme. I mean, I see it all in the metaphors of molecular biology. You know, I have a new sequence of codons here, and I want to insert it into each one of you without error in copying, and then you should go forth and tell other people and copy it into their head, and this meme will... Spread Because we cannot evolve faster than our language. The edge of being is the edge of meaning. And somehow we have to push the edge of meaning. We have to extend it. We have to, because uh, if we appear to be confronted by insoluble problems, it's because we have the wrong language. For dealing with this problem. You know, you learn that with computers. Certain languages are good for certain kinds of problems. And uh, we have to constantly evolve uh, language and push it forward. And the way I think of the psychedelics is they are catalysts to the imagination. I mean, that's what they were back A hundred thousand years ago, the imagination, which was just this glimmering, this iridescence on the surface of ape cognition, was under the influence of uh, the reciprocal feedback of self-reflection, you know, that is created by watching your own mind because it has suddenly become interesting, because it has suddenly been flooded by a psychoactive amine, that iridescence has been coaxed into language, art, architecture, music, poetry—the whole, the whole ball of wax. But now we know these things. It's no longer uh, a sort of haphazard process. We can, by analyzing uh, uh, different kinds of cultures existing in the world today, and uh, cultures that existed in the past, we can uncover, reveal, unravel the lost secret of our origins. And I think, you know, I haven't talked too much this weekend, but I'm very keen for the notion of what I call the archaic revival. And the archaic revival is this overarching metaphor that is the way for us to go to save our necks at this point. It, when a culture gets into trouble, instinctively what it does is it goes back through its own past until it finds a moment where things seem to make sense. And then it brings that moment forward into the present. As an ex- The perfect example is uh, when... Medieval Christianity no longer made sense to a major proportion or percentage of the people of Western Europe because of the rise of new kinds of classes, new forms of wealth, new information about the world outside Europe. When the medieval vision lost its power... The intellectuals of that time instinctively reached backwards into the past, looking for a stable model. And finally they reached the golden age of Periclean Athens. And there they found Plato, Aristotle, the dramatists, so forth. And they created classicism. Now notice that we're talking here about the 1400s. Classicism was brought to birth in the 1400s, 2,000 years after the death of Plato. And we are still, to a tremendous degree, we are the children of this classical uh, revival, which we call the Renaissance. Our theories of law, our theories of government... Our notion of justice, our notions of city planning, of architecture, of uh, all kind of military planning, and so forth and so on, are all drawn from classical Greek and Roman models that were brought back from the dead... 500 years ago by a bunch of Italian uh, investment bankers who thought this was a good model to build on, to hang their civilization on. And now uh, this has run out. The contradictions are too extreme. This classicism, I don't want to say it's failed, but it has just taken us as far as it can go. So now, we again, we confront great existential confusion. We confront... Cultural values, completely different from our own, such as rainforest Aborigines and so forth. We confront the toxic legacy of modern science, the the retreating species counts of the Earth, the decaying atmosphere. All these things. So we must now reach far back into time for a new cultural model. We our crisis is so great that we have to reach back to uh, the high Paleolithic, to the moment immediately before the invention of agriculture and the uh, creation of the dominator ego. And I see, you know, people talk about the new age and the new paradigm and this and that. Well, it's larger than that. It's been going on throughout the 20th century. The discovery of the purification of mescaline in Berlin in 1897... Uh, Freud begins to publish uh, around the turn of the century. Jung, uh, they are discovering the primitive unconscious. They are revealing to Edvardian and Viennese ladies and gentlemen of great culture and breeding that they have inside them, you know, brawling, incestuous, violent, lust driven uh, animal natures. In other words, they are reintroducing in a way, Awareness of the primitive into this tremendously constipated, male dominated, late 19th century post-Victorian uh, cultural milieu and then following hard upon them, the impressionists in the 1880s giving way to analytical cubism and all the, the cubism arose as a result of the fascination of a few artists with uh, primitive African masks Picasso and his circle, and when they brought this stuff back to Paris in 1905 through 15, nobody had ever seen this kind of thing. And these guys began trying to deconstruct the pictorial space of people like Degas and those people into the pictorial space of the primitive Mentality. Meanwhile, uh, uh, anthropologists were bringing in, and Fraser published The Golden Bough, which laid before the European intellectual community this vast repository of integrated mythology. Uh, National socialism, surrealism, all of these things, some negative, some positive, are all aspects of this the 20th century fascination and revivification of the primitive, rock and roll, uh, the rise of sexual permissiveness, uh, the rise of, uh, uh, you know, styles of dancing, which were not this, uh, you know, the minuet and so forth. All of this signals this fascination with the primitive, but at the center of it stand two phenomena, or two integrated uh, phenomena, Uh, the personality of the shaman and the fact of the psychedelic experience. And we've come late to that. You know, the 1960s is when this theme was first announced for any large number of people. And I think, you know, that we have to deconstruct, consciously deconstruct this constipated, classical, industrial, linear, uh, dominator civilization that we're trapped inside because it's a vehicle we can't steer. It's glued to the tracks which run right over the cliff. If we cannot alter the assumptions of this society, if the George Bushes and Helmut Kohl's of this world are going to continue to run things, then, you know, head for the bunkers, folks, and pray because the bunkers aren't going to be any consolation.
0: You're listening to The Psychedelic
2: Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: So, uh, I've got a quiz for you. Do you remember my uh, introduction a few minutes ago uh, to that uh, June 1983 interview that uh, Terence did with New Dimensions Radio? Well, uh, in the second piece that I played, which uh, actually was recorded almost ten years later, did you notice that he was then saying that space migration seemed to now be off the table? Well, my point in playing those two bits uh, back-to-back was to reinforce the fact that almost everyone, uh, at least everyone who thinks for themselves and questions authority, you know, uh, people like you and me, well, uh, from time to time, most of us probably wind up changing a position or two. So uh, let's all be careful about uh, making claims that so-and-so believed or said such-and-such. Uh, granted, uh, what you say may be true, but unless you're sure that uh, this was the latest position a person took on that issue, uh, well, be sure to be clear about uh, when that person took a position, because uh, maybe she or he changed her mind. Or uh, something like that. Uh, I think you know what I'm saying. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but... There were a couple of times there when Terence got off on one of his beautiful poetic riffs that I once again, uh, well, I remembered what it was that so draws me to his talks. If you go back and re-listen to that little bit, uh, maybe it was about a little over 30 minutes into his interview, where he begins talking about uh, exteriorizing the soul and the apotheosis of technology. Uh, Remember that part? Well, uh, just have a little toke and uh, as you listen to him, keep in mind that he wasn't reading these beautifully worded paragraphs that had been well crafted and uh, uh, only came out after editing. He was actually just talking without notes and uh, that may have been uh, a big part of the wonder of the man because he could sit on the floor uh, cross-legged and for hours and just regale everyone there with uh, what seemed very little effort. In short, uh, his was always a brilliant performance on every level, even uh, perhaps to the level of being a reluctant mystic, dare I say. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.